thanks for tuning in to episode five of the Rugby Paper podcast. Last weekend, Six Nations leaders France took yet another step towards the coveted Grand Slam by steamrollering Scotland. Today, I'm joined by Leicester Tigers prop James Whitcomb and his dad, ex-pro Martin, to discuss rugby in the family and changes in the game. James Whitcomb, Martin Whitcomb, thanks so much for joining me. How are you guys doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Yeah, yeah all good. Nice to be with you. And Martin, you're in a McDonald's car park. Is that for food's sake or just convenience sake? No, it's the only place I could find. Thankfully, I did find somewhere. James, very well done at the weekend. Great win against Gloucester. You guys are now, is it 16 points clear? Yeah, I think it's something like that, yeah. Not worrying about results, really. Just trying to build on performances, um, see where we can get better and uh, just try to keep that momentum going. When does attention start to turn to June and the playoffs, the final, etc.? Not until then, really. We we hadn't uh, spoke about that at all. Um, just take each week as it comes and take it from there, really. And Martin, what are you up to nowadays? I saw you published a book last year uh, around Rugby League. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I kind of stumbled into this. Um, um, it was about five or six years ago. Cardiff was European capital of sport. My, my grandfather, Frank Whitcomb Senior, was picked as one of the sort of local heroes of this project. And from the most humble beginnings, we, you know, we ended up putting a book together. We've got a second one on the go at the minute. And uh, if everything goes according to plan, there'll be, there'll be a third one sometime next year. So, you know, it's something that I never planned, but I, I, I really enjoy it. You know, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, obviously, we're mid-Six Nations at the moment. Usually we do a Six Nation preview. But just a quick note on, obviously, you're both front rowers. The front row has come under scrutiny lately. Um, what I want to know from either of you is what is your first choice England front row as it stands? I know... Leicester Tigers affiliation, you'll probably say Ellis Genge, but who are the other two? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I'd go Ellis Genge. I think Jamie George is quite a good set piece. And bring back the polar bear, Dan Cole, I think. Okay, even at the age of, how old is Dan Cole now? Like 34? 34, yeah. But still, I think for Leicester now, he's playing some good rugby. And his set piece is, is first class, so... A set piece specialist in the Joe Marler Dan Cole mould would certainly add a bit of an anchor to the scrum, definitely. Martin, do you agree? You know, the best players are in the squad at the moment and everyone's got their own opinion on who should start and who shouldn't. But um, I think we've got the blessed folks to do the job in the squad at the moment, really. James, obviously, you're very lucky to be in the same squad as Ellis Genge, who, by all accounts, is one, a character and also just a very good lad. Yes. He, as you've come up through the system, you're obviously 21 years of age. He's 27. Has he been a mentor of sorts for you? Um, yeah, Definitely. Um, so I started three years ago now, and ever since then, that first session, um, just little attention to detail stuff. Said uh, put your foot here, put your bar needs to be higher here, and just just helping me out and passing on his experience on to me. And I'm really grateful for it. And in terms of Ben Youngs, obviously he reached 115 caps at the weekend. What's the atmosphere around the Leicester Tigers squad when a player who's been with Tigers for so long make you know achieves something of that magnitude? Oh, I think everyone was uh, was delighted for for him. Obviously, we have uh, we have a group chat, a players group chat, and um, obviously we were playing at the time. But all the boys sending messages and stuff, and everyone's just genuinely happy for him. Um, I mean, Lenny's a great lad, and everyone loves him. So yeah, absolutely delighted for him, and uh, what a milestone is. I don't know whether you guys know we have a predictions league going um, at the rugby paper for the Six Nations scores. Well, just for our listeners, so beforehand. I was the one who was top of the league, which seems a little bit backwards. That has now been corrected, so to speak. Brendan got two perfect team scores and three correct results, has added 29 to his score. He's now first on 55. Nick has added 23 with one perfect team score and three correct results, and he's now in second place on 52. 
I got three correct results, but no perfect scores. I'm in third place on 51. And then Michael Owen, who backed Wales to win. He backed Scotland to beat France. And he backed Italy to score 25 points against Ireland. He is last on 33. So stay tuned for that next week. And we will come back to you with more updates. Now, obviously, there aren't just two Whitcombs. There are four Whitcombs and a Cockcroft in the sort of Whitcomb dynasty, so to speak. James Martin, you're both rugby union. James Leicester Tigers. Martin, Leicester Tigers, Sale Bedford. And then your dad, Frank Jr., he was union as well. And then Frank Frank Sr. was league. Is that correct? Yes. Frank uh, Sr. was the one who got the rugby dynasty going. My great-grand, my great-grandfather, Fred Whitcomb, he, he, was, uh, he was a tough guy. He was a burnable boxer in Tiger Bay in Cardiff. So uh, as far as we know, he was the first sort of sportsman in the family. Frank Whitcomb Sr. took up rugby union. He played fullback at Cardiff to be win with. Then his brother, George, became a professional footballer, also a baseball player. And ultimately, Frank, uh, Frank Whitcomb Sr. played rugby league for Wales and Great Britain. And his brother, George, played baseball for Wales. They were the kind of the two trailblazers in the family who got the, you know, got the sport and dynasty going, really. And long may it continue. Well, my first question is not on the rugby front so much, but obviously, clearly, genetically, there's something special about the Whitcomb gene. My question is, who was the biggest baby? I think it was me. I was £10.4. I don't know. I don't know if anyone comes close, Dad. I don't know. What, you, what were you? No, nothing like that, son. You, you were <laughs> the biggest baby by some way. Uh, yeah, £10.4 is something else, I've got to say. You said Frank Senior started at fullback, but he ended up being a prop, didn't he? Yeah, he, he started at fullback, um, which would surprise people who watched him play in his generation because he joined the army where he was converted to a front row forward. And in an era when the big forwards were sort of 12, 13 stone, Frank Whitcomb ended up being an 18 stone front row <laughs> forward. So he, he was a huge man in his generation. That was his nickname. It wasn't his nickname, just the big man. The big man, yeah, it's, yeah, it's known as the big man. Yeah, it's not particularly imaginative, but I guess it's to the point. Well, it certainly continued down the family. Frank Senior, if my math is right, James, you wouldn't have met him. No. Okay, Frank Junior, you would have met him. Would you ever have dinners, all three of you in the same house, and would that be actually poss- humanly possible to cater for or not? We, we did have get-togethers, and uh, there the, the, the were great occasions. Brecky was a, you know, your uh, typical... Uh, Full English brekkie. We, we used to have those and chat about rugby and um, the kind of things you do when uh, you're a young guy and you've got some dreams in the in the sport that James had. And uh, they were great memories and great fun. And uh, just on the food front, you know, when when, uh, when James grew up and uh, progressed to, to move out of the house, that was the biggest difference was the food bill. The food bill, I cannot tell you how that came down. And uh, we're I don't know if I can mention this, but we're greatly indebted to our local farm shop that sponsored James and uh, they're providing all his meat now. So they've been a hell of a help to us. How big would a Christmas dinner be for James Whitcomb, Martin Whitcomb and Frank Whitcomb Jr.? Well, if you were attacking the turkey, you'd be looking at crumbs afterwards, I think. Three bird roast gets demolished, doesn't it? Yeah, three bird roast is a big call in our place. We, we, <laughs> we, we enjoy that. You've got to be quick at the table at our place. Uh, food disappears fast. Yeah, I know the feeling. I mean, I back myself in the knee top, but for once I find myself being slightly, feeling slightly intimidated. Lastly, obviously, with the name Whitcomb, is it something that, you know, James, you were very proud to be born into and do you feel like there's that encourages you to sort of carry that name into rugby? Uh, to be honest, I don't really think about that so much. I mean, even from a young age, 
obviously everyone in the family playing rugby, my dad playing rugby. My dad wasn't actually the one that took me down to the rugby club first. It was my mum because he didn't want me to be forced into it. So my mum took me down for a while and it's just and obviously being around some of dad's friends there into rugby and it was just something I wanted to to take up and see if I enjoyed it from the age of five. So mum took me down and um, and yeah, I loved it ever then. I think I got a free hot dog on a Sunday after running around. So that's where I was there. <laughs> Get the free hot dog. Um, and then you just started like that really. So it was never, no one in the family was ever pushy towards me. It was just the, the route I went down. And Martin, what about you? How was Frank Jr. in sort of, did he shepherd you towards rugby or was that also almost of your own volition? I mean, when I, when I was growing up, there wasn't organised sport like there is today, really, in clubs. I mean, if you wanted to play sport, you had to join the local clubs or the scouts or where they had a football league and they had cricket leagues and, you know, the local youth clubs used to have youth club leagues as well. So unless you joined some kind of organisation, you didn't really get access to sport. So I played anything that was available. Ultimately, Keith Rugby Club were one of the first clubs in Yorkshire to get the Bantams, as it was called, then going. As with most of these things, a lot of my pals went along to the Bantams and had a game of rugby. And uh, I joined in. But, you know, when I remember it, it was quite bizarre. There was like an under-16 team, so... If you were 12 or you were 15 or you were 16, you just played in this under-16 team. So uh, it was a real mismatch and uh, it was the it was the sort of groundbreaking junior rugby, you know, grassroots rugby as we know today. But it, it was under a very different structure to what people would play today. But my, my dad never pushed me in to do anything in sport. He just told me to play as much sport as I can, as many different games as I can and uh, see what I enjoyed. And uh, most of my pals play rugby union, as I said. So that that's the game I fell in love with, really. It's very difficult to imagine a grassroots game that doesn't exist in the same way it does today, I've got to say. Uh, and in terms of sentiment, obviously, that I suppose there is a degree of sentiment. James, you followed in your father's footsteps playing for Leicester Tigers. Did that play a part in going through the Leicester Tigers Academy? Was it a choice in any way or was it just the lay of the land and how things happened? Uh, it was something that came about. I was actually, um, I remember going down as a young as a young kid. Um, I'd have been about 10, 11 at the time, and I went to school at Woodhouse Grove up in Leeds. So, of course, Yorkshire Carnegie at the time, now Leeds Tights, was going to be the route I was going to go down. And it was actually Nick Young's, Tom and Ben Young's dad, um, who my dad played with, who spoke to us and just said, look, what, what's happening with your career? And just said, I'm thinking of joining, uh, joining Yorkshire. And it was actually Simon Cohen at the time. He was there as well, and he said, "Look, we'll see, if, we'll see if get you down, see if we can get you down here." So I ended up going to an ERDPP um, centre when I was about twelve with the Tigers then, and it just started from there really, and just worked my way through the system. And how did your mum feel about it? Obviously, you said she she encouraged you into it. I I, I don't envy her having to watch you um, throw yourself at fellow nineteen stone men, having done the same thing with Martin, no doubt, thirty years prior. Yeah, I think she she enjoys it gets down to games and stuff when she can. But I think she's just happy that I, I'm enjoying my sport and enjoying my rugby. And it didn't matter if I was a, a ballet dancer or a rugby player, she, she'd enjoy it either way. So. Slightly away from um, your family, but your family is very much relevant for this because there's a fantastic cr- chronology of rugby union. So I was looking at some stats and in 1974, the average male player was one metre 78 and 84 kilos. 
Now that number is nearly 190 centimeters and 100 kilos. So obviously the scope of the game has very much changed and the average player is a lot bigger, a lot faster, a lot more explosive, a lot stronger than they were. Martin, do you think that your era was preceded the start of you know breeding these machines or do you think it was part and parcel of the process? I mean, if I think back to when I first started uh, playing rugby seriously, I guess Billy Beaumont was captain of England. He'd be sort of just short of 6'3", Billy, probably a 16-stone forward. And it, he, he would be regarded as a, a mountain of a man at that time. You know, he was a big guy locking the second row. Obviously, the, the games have evolved and players have evolved, but it, it's quite incredible today when you see particularly that position. You know, you've got guys now 6'7", six, 6'8", six, 6'9". The, the, the way and the physicality of the way the players have changed, it's just unbelievable. I, I saw an interesting photograph uh, one time. There was Phil, Phil Bennett standing next to, I think it was Owen Farrell. And it just gives you a, an idea of the, the, the different stature of the players. I mean, I think Owen's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, he's, he's, he's a tall guy. And you see this diminutive figure, Phil Bennett, who the, the type of fly-off I would remember when I first started playing rugby. It's incredible how all the, the sizes of the players have changed. It's, it's, it's the biggest sort of feature of the modern game, I would say. I don't know how much of a mentor you've been for James in bringing him into rugby, but in terms of sort of rearing him towards that type of a game, do you feel that you've had to adjust your perceptions into it as well in that you can't necessarily tell James at the age of 16, 17 exactly what he's going into when he's up at the academy or potentially pushing for a first team spot? I think what you find with this journey is that there's, um, you know, there's, there's a period which cuts off 13, 14, where, you know, you have some knowledge about the game. You know a little bit about tactics and about positional play and, you know, what's required in the line out and the scrum. You know, you, you do know a basic amount of information, but the game's changed so much and it's evolved in such a different way that, I, I no longer have access to that kind of information. So, so my role changes from being, you know, somebody who can give you a, a few pointers on what to do in your position to today, it, you know, it's, a, it's an encouragement role, a completely different role to what it was when uh, James's journey started. Look, there's no disputing that the game has moved towards size, big mass monsters. However, one thing that I'm quite curious about is that it's become a slightly more common opinion that it's not just size that's important, but you've got to back that up with strength, conditioning, explosive power, and also speed. There seems to be a shift away from the complete mass monster and towards the functional athlete who can you know, throw themselves around the park. For example, Harry Thacker is the best example I can think of as a front rower at Bristol Bears. So James, at the Leicester Tigers Academy as a front row, what sort of changes are they implementing into your strength and conditioning? Is it still mostly about strength or is it about power output? Is it about remaining functional, etc.? Um, yeah, how have you noticed that change? Obviously, you still lift the weight. You still you squat in once a week. You're still doing uppers, benching. You're still doing all the stuff that everyone thinks you still do. You still do that stuff. But we, there might be a couple of times a week incorporate some... Um, some speed work or some agility work and some power stuff. So it's not just the backs doing that as well. It's the whole squad because um, everyone's catching up and everyone everyone's doing the same thing. So you need to be able to get that point of difference. Have you noticed players, uh, especially front rowers, less the type to put in, you know, a 40-minute struggle, but rather the, the types who have that endurance to be able to go for 60, 70, even when needed, 80 minutes? Yeah, I think, well, if you look at someone like Ellis Gend, I mean, he... He's done 80s for Leicester loads of times and um, 
and you look around, well, I'm thinking now when I've played, there's there's plenty of players knocking around now that, that can do a full 80 and, and I haven't been playing that long. So um, it's, definitely, it's definitely changing. Martin, in terms of diet, was there a diet that you had to follow as a pro back in the 80s or is that something that has you know completely come into the game in the past 20 years or so? I mean, in the in the early days, when again back in the early eighties, mid eighties, we we just didn't really have the knowledge that people have today of diet. I, I can give you one example of that. I remember one time um, there was a game when I was in the forces. I played for the combined services, and uh, at twelve o'clock before the game, we all, we all met at a hotel and we had a steak. And uh, it was considered at the time that you know if you if you ate a steak before you played rugby, it, it was a great thing to do. Well. You know, as we all probably know today, it's, it's possibly the worst thing that we could ever do. But that's probably a tradition that had been in the game for, you know, for years and years and years. And I think when I met uh, Chalky White at Leicester, he was the first person that I spoke to that he did have a knowledge of diet and he did have a knowledge of what you should be doing with your fluids and rehydration. And he was always experimenting with different things and getting us to weigh in after training and after matches and things. And we kind of stumbled into this education of um, what people would take today as just, um, you know, uh, basically being a, a sportsman is having a, a good, well-balanced diet. That's very interesting. And obviously it's evolved even more since then. So does that mean that, James, when you came through the system, I don't know what age you joined Leicester Tigers Academy or what age dietitians would start to get involved, but... Were you taken by surprise a little bit at the level of not necessarily micromanaging, but rather discipline and attention to detail that you would have to approach your diet with based on the impression that you may have formed from, you know, your dad's dinnertime stories and the type of food you'd been eating at home for 10, 15 years? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I went in not really knowing what to, what I just thought I want to go in and enjoy it, see what it's about. Like, I didn't really have a, I didn't know what to expect. But going in there now, even now, like, what were we? I think you got more help when you were like 16, 15, when you're learning it. Whereas now, the nutritionist, you know what you should be eating. So it's just more about, we still get skin folds done and stuff like that. So it's more about managing that. But yeah, I just say that really. Like when you're younger, 15, 16, you get, you get more support and help on what, what you should be eating. And there's, there's help there provided if you need it. Um, and as long as you're hitting your targets, they're, they're pretty happy with it. Happy with it. And were you expecting it to be as sort of personalised as it is in that maybe back in your day, Martin, it was, you know, what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. And that was it. And that was, that was the sort of stage you were at in terms of progressing into diet and how that enhanced performance. Now there are nutrient supplements that players are encouraged or not encouraged to take based on their role, their position, et cetera, et cetera. James, I had Caden Murley, uh, the Harlequins winger on a couple of weeks ago, and he said that as he'd never had an issue in terms of going to the gym, keeping on size, etc., His diet, his strength and conditioning had catered more towards his speed, his conditioning. Had you expected that level of specificity for your own game? I'm guessing, you know, your coaches haven't tried to pack size on you because it sounds like as a 10, as a 10-4 baby, that's never been your issue. Yeah, well, it's actually weird because when I came into Leicester, when I first started, I was a big lad, but I hadn't really been in the gym that much. I was still, what would have been then? I'd been like 15, 16. And I was just like a big lad. Um, so they tried to strip me down a bit and uh, get me in the gym a bit. But other than that, like, it's me a lot of strength work. For example, if I'm scrumming against someone like Dan Cole, who's been in the gym for 
what is it, 34 now, like 16 years, and I'm 21. So he's obviously had a lot more gym work than me, so he's a lot stronger. So for me, the strength element could be put scrummed in against someone who's a lot stronger than me as well. So it's more more going down that strength route. We have a nutritionist there, and, and he, he helps me what to eat and stuff, but I know what the correct food is. I know what I need to eat now. And um, I suppose that's the goal, isn't it, is to bring you towards a level of self-sustenance with yeah, it. Well, I, don't, I don't think they want... Uh, me to rely on him to yeah exactly to get a meal put together like he I might so I went for a stage where for maybe two or three months I was just sending all my meals that I had to him just to see what so at the end of it we could sit down go for all the pictures like yeah that's good maybe you can substitute this in with this so a lot of it he would never say right you're eating sausage and mash tonight you know what I mean it was a lot of the time it was look you tell me what you think's best and we'll go from there because I'm the one that's driving it not him. So, so yeah, it's an, it's, it's an interesting topic because it's obviously changed so much when my, when my dad was there. I don't know, it might be different, different at different clubs, but uh, take, take ownership of it yourself, I think. Yeah, I think that's really good. And just in terms of your role as a player, obviously you've made 16 appearances for Leicester Tigers now. Interestingly, your first start was as a flanker, even though you're at prop. Now, yeah. Martin, I'd imagine that um, back in your day, playing flanker as a prop was a bit more inconceivable than it is now? It, it's, it's an interesting one, really. As you can imagine, you'd, you'd pick up injuries at that time. You'd only taken a certain amount of players with you. And, and I don't think it was unusual that sometimes you'd have to get the best players on the field and somebody might have to play out of position. I, I don't think the demands of the position were what they are today. So Whereas a, a front rower could maybe cover in the second row or the back row uh, back in the day without making a huge impact on the, on the team. Whereas today, it, it, you, you ask for such specific jobs from the players that play in the respective positions, it probably is a big ask. And, uh, you know, it's one, one of the interesting things that's happened under Steve's uh, regime at, uh, at Leicester is the way he's asked some of the players in... Uh, particularly the front row players, to, to play in different positions in the back row. And uh, who knows, maybe that's the way the game's going. I, I, I don't know, but it, it's interesting. It's interesting to watch. Well, that's what I'm getting at is I, I completely agree with you that the game since your day moved towards a specificity of props should be built like props, second row should be built like second rows, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about the concept of hybrid players, you know, Eddie Jones mentioned playing the likes of Ollie Thorley in the back row, for example. Sam Simmons at centre, which personally I would love to see him given a go at centre. My point is, is now that players are so well conditioned and they have such high levels of endurance, I'm not saying that you're suddenly going to see props on the wing, but you know you do see Jamie George running about on the wing. You do see Ellis Genge flinging big miss passes to Jamie George. Is the sort of boundary between positions starting to become a bit more of a grey area again? As rugby evolves, I mean, there's one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, the, the skill set that the, the players have, particularly in the in, in the forward pack today, it's tremendous. It's it's not unusual to see a guy who can throw a decent pass out who's a, a front row forward or a lock who can carry strongly through the middle of the field like a backline player would. It's great to see people who uh, are not just big lads who play the number on the back of the shirt. If they can bring something else to the table, if they, you know, if they can offer some defence or they can offer some 
a great skill set. It's it's good for us as spectators to see that the the more and more players there are on the team who um, you know can con- contribute above and beyond than the position they play. Obviously, the position of prop in the modern day is very much a balance between role in the tight and role in the loose. Has this changed since your day, Martin, in that was your role as a prop primarily scrummaging and mauling? If you look at, for instance, the north of England, a lot of people have played both codes. They've played rugby league and rugby union. So there is a transitional skill set that they've required at both, both games. When I, when I first started playing rugby, I think when um, the, wall, the wall, Wallabies came over in about 1984 and we saw people like Tommy Lawton and Enrico Rodriguez and uh, I don't think we'd seen a team playing that way that incorporated backs and forwards playing together. And uh, maybe that was the beginning of expectations in different positions in the forward pack that you could squeeze more and more out of them. James, a follow-up question for you. Are you now having to work on your carrying, getting at your jackling over the ball, maybe even your handling every day, high ball work, drop goals? Well, I think fundamentally, as a front row forward, or as any forward, the first thing for me, you scrum and more with your bread and butter. That's what you've got to get right. And then around that, we're working on skills most mornings where we're playing tips, we're going out the back to the tens and stuff because... If that opportunity strikes in the game, you don't only want certain players to be able to, to perfect that skill. You want the whole team to be able to do that or else your opportunities are reduced. So, um, yeah, of course, it's something we work on. Not so much the, the high balls and stuff like that and the drop kicks. But, um, but yeah, those those extra skills that might give you um, an edge on an opponent or if you can get it right, um, that leads to a try for the team or something like that, then, um, yeah, of course, of course, we're working on it. The only reason I ask about the drop kicks, and I suppose plays kicks would have been a better question, is I don't know if he was still at, was at Tigers when you broke into the first team. Uh, Logavili Mulapola, was he there with you? He came for a brief spell in pre-season. One of the scariest looking men any human could wish to see. Um, And I remember seeing just this video of him. I think he was just on the Welford Road pitch uh, and he just slotted this goal from the very far right corner, the hardest kick a kicker could have. And I just wondered whether that was something that the... The props were being raised to do in the event. Uh, of a, I don't. Uh, I don't want to pull my hamstring and not be be, be fit to, to play in the team. So okay, no, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, uh, we're going to put a break in rugby discussion. We will come back to a few law changes and off the pitch changes. Now, Martin James Whitcomb, it is time for your random rugby fifteen. It's fifteen quick fire questions. You can say as much or as little as you like. We're a little bit tight for time, so ideally emphasis on the quick in quick fire. Um, and when you're ready, we will get going. And I'll open the button, Dad. Fire away, son. Nickname? Uh, Mamba and Jimmy. Why Mamba? It's a, it came from Dad, really, um, down at Keyfley. He got called Mamba then. And as I came down as a, as a young kid, I just got called Mamba Junior, but I don't really know why. Dad, you might know. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, your nickname was Mamba, I take it. Yeah, some people in... Uh, 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 overseas would know me as Gunston. I think that's the name that most people would know me as if I had used my nickname. James, I was about to say that Mini Mamba has a better ring to it than Mamba Junior, but I suppose you weren't exactly a Mini Mamba, were you? <laughs> no. Best rugby memory? Ooh, probably my probably my debut for Leicester away in Bayonne in France. And we won, won there for the first time in 13 years in France. So that was a special day and it was just a special occasion because it was my debut. So 
Yeah. I once met Bill McLaren, um, who was a guy I'd, I'd grown up with. Uh, he was the voice of rugby, I guess, when I was growing up. And uh, I met Bill, and uh, what a fantastic guy. And uh, I, I only met him the once, but it was what a pleasure. Most embarrassing rugby memory? At school, I pulled my hamstring while scoring a try. So I died for a, to score a try, and then the hamstring went. So that was pretty embarrassing getting up from that. I remember one time um, I had a try scoring opportunity, and I, I thought I'd put the ball down on the try line. It was actually the five yard line. <laughs> Fortunately, we did score after that, but I did, I did cop a bit of flight for that one. Well, I don't know what it says, but I've, I've heard stories about people doing that before, and I've only ever heard props do that. No one else. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Pre-game tune. Um, I actually don't listen to music before. I just like to chill out. Whatever's on in the changing room, I'm happy with, but I'm not that specific where I need to have a certain song to get me going or something like that. So I'm pretty easy. I'd go for something like Shoot to Thrill by ACDC, something to get the, uh, get the boys going. Strong. Post-game meal. <laughs> I have something like a Domino's or something that would be nice, but actually at the club, they do, uh, during COVID and stuff, we haven't been able to, like, uh, normally you can go upstairs and have a sit-down meal and stuff and chat to the other team and stuff, but during COVID, we haven't been able to do that. And they actually do, um, they bring bags into the changing rooms and they do really good lasagna. So at the minute, I'm loving the lasagna, to be fair. Yeah, I'm a bit more traditional. I'd be a fish and chips man after rugby. Best player you've played against? Ooh, Faf de Klerk, I think, when I played Sale. Yeah, Faf. For, for myself, I'd go for Graham Price. Best player you've played with? Oh, I can't. That was, was quite... It was George Ford, Ben Youngs, Alice Gaines, Dan Cole, British Lion, Ben... The, I don't know. I'm going to go with all four of them. Yeah, I'd, I think I'd go with Peter Winterbottom as the best player I've played with. Favourite player right now? I've gone with Freddie Stewart. Big mate of mine, care for the academy together and he's smashing it. So really happy for him and, and he's going well, so Freddie. We, we've got a soft spot for Tommy Raphael. He, he, I'm a fan of Tommy. He's a, he's a great great player for the team. Rugby idol? Growing up, like I just loved watching rugby. I didn't really have a guy I was like, wow, I want to be him. I just enjoyed watching the game and just watched as much rugby as possible, rugby league and union. Again, because I watched a lot of Leicester, like guys like Marcus Ayers, Dan Cole, Tom Youngs. It was probably more on the Leicester guys who used to go watch them. Yeah, Dan Cole, Tom Youngs. There was one bloke everyone talked about rugby and rugby league when I was growing up, and his, his name was Jim Sullivan. I think if you look up Jim and look at his records, he's, uh, he, he's, he's possibly one of, uh, one of the great all-time rugby players of Ivor Code. So, yeah, I put Jim down as my rugby idol. Favourite gym exercise? I actually don't. I've, I just do as I'm told. <laughs> I look at my programme, do as I'm told. Um but probably some upper body, a bit of bench press, something like that, dumbbell bench. I'll go for the plank. No, unexpected. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite stadium? Uh, I can't look past Welford Road. Yeah, for me too. That was my first love, Welford Road. It's, it's uh, one of the great grounds in the country, one of the great club uh, grounds to play in the world. So, yeah, Welford Road for me. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? God, I never thought about this. I always wanted to play rugby. I just didn't have a fan big. <laughs> God, maybe something in property, something around that, or I don't know. I like my darts, so maybe only in a pub. <laughs> darts not not darts player. I love a bit of darts. I don't know. If, yeah, potentially, maybe. Obviously, I, I played rugby apart from the last three years of my career when I was a professional. It was an amateur game, so you, you had to have a job to enjoy your rugby career. And um, I was blessed for seven years. I served in the Royal Air Force and uh, fantastic memories. Particularly interested by this one, rugby rule you would change? 
the mark. Get rid of the mark. Yeah, you've stolen my thunder there. I would also say the mark. Best thing about working in rugby? I'd say the camaraderie with all the boys. Yeah, the laughs and stuff in the changing room. Um, I think when the day does come where I pack up, I think I'll miss that the most. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree with that totally. The team spirit, the camaraderie, it's um, it's only when you haven't got it that you know what you had. And uh, it's without a doubt the, the, the best thing in the game. But what what, what I will say to, to James is that camaraderie and that team spirit, at my stage in life now, I, I make boys who I, I played with and against. And uh, when you bump into each other, you, you go back to those days. So the gift of uh, of what we get from playing rugby, it's, it's with you for your life. That's a fantastic last answer to finish our uh, random rugby 15 thanks for doing that gents back to changes in the game martin i want to talk to you because you have experienced the scrum as a player 30 40 years ago and now um two questions for you one what are the most significant changes to scrummaging obviously it is constantly changing that might be tricky to answer but fundamentally do you believe that scrums are any safer now than they were um in the 1980s yeah it's an interesting one though. I recently showed uh, James some clips of uh, it was Lancashire playing a team in France, and um, anybody from uh, you know the pre-pro era really remember that the, the, the referee didn't bring the packs together and you know crouch, pause, and there was no instructions. The packs just got on with it, so it was kind of self-governing. And one of the things that I noticed with great interest when we looked at these clips of this uh, this, this game, uh, none of the, the, the scrums collapsed. And I, I'm not saying that, you know, there was never a collapsed scrum, but it, it's interesting how it's come into the game, into the modern game. It's something that never really happened that much unless somebody did slip or there was a, you know, a mistake in the binding. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one how the scrums change. Obviously, it has to be more regulated with the way that the modern-day front rowers are conditioned. So do you think those reg- regulations mitigate the extra force that those beasts are providing? I, I always get the feeling that maybe the lawmakers of the game, they, they don't really want, uh, want it to be the power play that it could be or it, it was in the past and... Uh, it's as if they're afraid of letting the contest take place sometimes. You know, it's interesting when you see some of these big games, like, for instance, when England played Scotland, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. The boys in the English pack, obviously, you get the feeling that they were very dominant and were looking for the, the, the penalty that never came. You just wonder sometimes with the scrum if they're a bit frightened of, uh, of, of, of what to do with it, you know, how to referee it, how to regulate it, how to manage it. It's... Um, you know, it's an interesting one for the game where it is now with that part of the play. You mentioned rugby in France. One of the things that is preventing grassroots rugby occupying the same sort of status as football, for example, obviously there are several things getting in the way, is the worry of neck, head injury, concussion, etc. Parents may be hesitant to let their children partake. Amateur rugby in France has introduced waist-high tackles, and uncontested scrums. Do we think that's a viable route for English grassroots rugby today? Question to both of you. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts. And if so, or if not, why? You've, you've got to learn the skills to play in the front row at some point. And I, I understand that there's got to be a duty of care. And heaven forbid, we don't want to see anybody getting injured. You know, that, that, that's not the object of the sport at all. But Equally, if you, if you want to be a front row forward, you, you, you've, you've got to learn the skills somewhere. So 
I guess at what point do you say that, you know, people can pack down against each other and, you know, learn where to put the feet and what the body position should be and how you transfer weights. And uh, it's an interesting one. And equally on the tackle, I I understand the reason that you don't want the headshots. And none none of us want to see people with concussion and terrible head injuries. But whether the the good things or bad things, I wouldn't like to say. But I, I think the most important thing for young players is to learn the techniques at the earliest age possible. So you feel comfortable as you progress in rugby clear that you're doing the right thing. James, do you agree? Uh, no, I, I echo what my dad said, really. Um, especially with the scrum stuff, I think, obviously, you don't want six, seven-year-olds packing down a scrum, but you don't want to be packing down at 16, 15 and not knowing really much of what, of what you're doing or where I put my feet, where I put my head, because that'll probably lead to more injuries. So I think, obviously, with within reason, um, learning the technique and... Um, having some sort of scrum at a a young age, obviously within reason. I agree with you on a technical standpoint. It is important to know how to scrummage. I guess the difficulty with it is, is if eventually scrummaging doesn't exist in the grassroots game, everyone is in sort of the same boat when they get to the academy at age 16 and that's when they introduce it and that's where they teach everybody. That would create a very difficult transition stage where say, you know, you put a pin in it in the grassroots game now, all of a sudden, these players will be coming through the system, get to the age of 16, and they wouldn't have a clue. I don't think you can just drop it on a guy at that age and say, OK, we're going to make you a prop, because it's probably the most technical position in the pack. Some guy, I think how I was at 16, I was a pretty big guy. And if someone else is thinking about playing in the front row and they're not, they don't have the physique for it, and I and someone off, anyone has a lot of weight behind them and they suddenly come to a scrum, they don't really know what they're doing. And that, that's when you're going to get injuries. Martin, you touched upon this already. And the example of England against Scotland and the penalty that never was, was the example I had written down. Do you think that officiating of scrummaging has, or officiating in the tight, I'll even say, has become less consistent and more contentious? Obviously, the England-Scotland example is one. The crooked feed is another where my percent, I'm a scrum half. And I was always told, I've got to be able to come out the tunnel. And I think it's safe to say that I haven't seen a single uh, feed in the last two, three years that would have done that. Also, at the breakdown, on your feet seems to be more and more of a grey area, as does not releasing um, and not rolling away at the breakdown. Do you think there's a consistency that has disappeared? And if so, what can be done to bring this consistency back? Yeah, I mean, it's all a big can of worms. Again, if you look back to back in the day, you know, the, the ball had to go down the middle of the tunnel, you had uh, some very skillful hookers who could strike against the head. You know, possession was everything. Whereas today, we tend to kick possession away. A guy who could strike the ball against the head in the scrum was uh, worth his weight in gold. It's a good thing, and it may have sometimes it's a bad thing in rugby union. Is they're always keeping on top of the laws. You know, they're addressing things and looking at things in different ways. Maybe if we just let it sort of calm down for you know a couple of years and just just stick with the laws as they are, so that people didn't have to be constantly adapting to different interpretations or different ways that people want to referee the game. I don't really know what the answers are. Last sort of topic, so to speak, is off the pitch. Now, a big part of rugby was and still is the socials. I don't know how much you guys discussed the Leicester Tigers socials back then versus now um, or are willing to disclose, but obviously the typical rugby man can sink a pint and the next 15 after that. James, 
Coming into the Leicester first team, have you noticed that this is less the case now with more attention paid to both physical shape and also not imposing too much social pressure, people not, sorry, people doing what they don't want to do? I think the main thing, especially at Leicester, I'm sure it'll be the same at other clubs, but you don't want to lose your traditional rugby club values and have it like even now, it, after a game, we'll have a drink together, chat about the game and and enjoy each other's company and you don't, you don't want to lose that. So yeah, we still do that, um, but probably not as much as my dad's lot did back in the day. I think uh, them boys sunk a lot more beer than we do. But yeah, you don't you don't want to lose that, and you still when you win games and stuff, you still want to be able to enjoy it. Martin, can you testify that the quantities have decreased since your day? Yeah, it, you know it's an interesting one. It, it kind of brings a smile to my face when uh, we talk about this because I think everybody who played rugby, certainly when I played, the bus trip was the bedrock of the club. And even people who were injured used to come on the bus trip because um, on the way back, we'd stop at the pub and have a few pints. And there was the most valuable member of the team was somebody who knew all the rugby songs. Everyone would be back of the bus and the blokes playing cards and singing along. And, uh, you know, there were really memorable, uh, really memorable times in my life. And, you know, there was all the shenanigans if you stopped at a pub and somebody pinch something out of the pub and on Monday morning you'd have to ring up and apologise and take it back and uh, th- they were fantastic memories for me and um, I think if you ask any of the boys who played in the time I played that uh, they would echo that as well. My final question for you both um, and one of the biggest positives in terms of changes in rugby is awareness around player welfare. And I mean this both on physical fronts and mental fronts. As you mentioned, Martin, scrums used to not be crouched behind set, but rather just have at it. That's all stuff that looks to protect the player's physical health. James, I would imagine that Leicester Tigers has welfare officers or counsellors or therapists or whatever to protect mental health. Martin, I'm guessing that wasn't so much of a thing back in the 80s. Do you think the stature of the role of welfare, both physical and mental, continues to grow in the game? And do you think that's a an overwhelmingly positive thing. Yeah, again, it's an interesting question what you said there. We had mentors, we had role models, and they possibly fulfilled some of the roles that you've just described there. I mean, you roll up down at Leicester and I met some fantastic people who um, who guided me and helped me. But you needed help in a different way because I didn't have family and friends in the area. We didn't have comms like we have today. So... You needed help from senior players and uh, people on the management and the coaching staff in a way that you possibly don't need today. So it's an interesting one to see how it's changed. With the support that people need today, it's completely different kinds of pressures. I think, especially at Leicester, it's a pretty safe environment. If anyone is feeling like that, they'd be, it'd be fine to say it and there'd be help there. So as I'm sure there would be all the all the premiership clubs. So yeah, there definitely is that support there. And um if there is, just need to reach out to the boys or to whoever, and um, I'm sure they'll be there to help them. There's support behind the scenes, certainly. I, w- I would argue that there isn't necessarily the openness there needs to be yeah. um, around mental support in rugby and that sort of a thing. So hopefully the game continues to take positive steps in that direction on that front. Martin James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, James, good luck against Saris away this weekend. And Martin, good luck with novel number two and hopefully three after that. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having us on. Cheers, always. Much appreciated, mate. 
Next week's episode previews the penultimate weekend of Six Nations action. Joining me to discuss Wales versus France, Italy versus Scotland, and England versus Ireland, we've got Brendan Gallagher and Nick Kane, and Wales's greatest ever winger and top try scorer, Shane Williams. <laughs> 